Well, hello, and welcome to the Through the Word podcast, as pastors Chris Mitchell and John Bell seek to answer questions that come from the reading of God's Word, beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello, I'm Pastor John Bell. And I'm Pastor Chris Mitchell. And Pastor Chris, we're not alone this week. We, we are not. We have a guest. <laughs> Would you please introduce our guest? I'd be delighted to. We are in Louisville, Kentucky, and we had the opportunity to meet Dr. Doug Ponder, excuse me, no, Ponder, uh, from Grimke Seminary, but he lives in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. I'll let him tell a little bit more about that, but we are honored, uh, Dr. Ponder, to have you And I'm glad to be today. here. Also, Doug is fine. All right. Fine. All right. Unless you guys want me to call you Pastor John, Chris, or whatever. <laughs> no, no, I love it. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you're right. I work with a church in Richmond, Virginia, uh, which I helped plant about 13 years ago now. And um, before that, I was a student at Southeastern, did a couple degrees there, and then did some doctoral study at Southern uh, Seminary. Um, and the, the, the Southern, Southern, I know yes, that, that yeah. Southern, yeah. there's the Ohio State University, <laughs> yes. there's the University of Virginia, the Southern Baptist Theological right. Seminary. That's right. They let you know. But we love Sebbets. So, yes, we do. I do. And they're both pronounced Sebbets, aren't they? True. That's true. Technically, Technically, yes. Technically yes. <laughs> anyway, this is a bad start. We're already making grammar jokes, no. guys. Um, no, it's great. And, and, I, and, and a couple of years ago, we had... Well, about seven, maybe eight years ago, we had some men come to us in our church that said that they felt like they were discerning a call to ministry. But they were at a place in their life where they couldn't uproot and move uh, uh, and go to school like I did when I, when I was younger. Okay. And we didn't really want them to. We loved the work that the Lord was doing in mm-hmm. their lives, in our church, the relationships that they had with neighbors. Some of them had full-time jobs that were not with our church, so they couldn't just randomly take time off to go to school somewhere. But neither did they love the idea of online education. Uh, it's better than nothing. Surely. Yes. Well, surely. yes. But um, it, it, it also comes with other challenges. And so we thought, well, we'll do our best to try to train you. And some other churches in the area heard about what we were doing and asked if we could help train some of their pastors. Okay. And, and we did. And anyway, to make a long story short, another man named Doug Logan came into the picture. He had planted a church in a very difficult area in America, in one of the most crime-ridden cities in, in the country. And then after the difficult work of that, had a few years into that, transitioned it to the next a generation of leadership okay. and then moved into a coaching role where he was working with inner city uh, pastors and planters across the country, churches in hard places, they call it. Mm-hmm. And so um, while, while any place can be hard because yeah, so as hard as, as hard as, soil, as the hearts of the soil are and that sort of thing, there were additional challenges in these communities, mm. places where even if every member tithed faithfully, you were always going to need outside support because mm. of the extreme yes. poverty, things like that. And so he wanted, you know, he had this dream of an urban school of ministry that could help brothers in contexts like that, but knew that that same kind of school would also be on life support and require support from outside and so anyway when he came to us and said hey man this is what i've always dreamed of doing we said well here's what we've been doing here not for guys in that kind of situation but what if we combine these things and had a more um full orb school with kind of a a seminary with a school of ministry as a wing of that but those guys can get a full education and then they can also get that special training that, that you think they might need in that context and so about three years ago that was born we actually started the semester just before the pandemic hit Mm. So oh, it was wow. a really tough time to yes. start, um, and yet God has been kind to us, and we saw Excellent. we saw enrollment grow, and we've got about a hundred students now, and and oh, it's wow. a huge blessing. It's just been a lot of fun to to work with men who mostly are already serving as pastors, but for whatever reason, never had a chance to get a little bit of education, and so it's been a, a joy to come alongside these brothers to affirm them, and then to help them um, 
know the Bible a little better so they can help God's people do the same. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yes. And is there, oh, excuse sorry. me, go ahead. No, you finish that. Well, I was just going to say, is there a way to connect with, with that seminary for folks who might be listening? Yeah, like, sure. I know that sounds like yeah, something they I could, want to be They a part could of, Google so. Grimke Seminary. It's such a weird name. We're the only ones you'll find <laughs> with that. Okay. Um, it's, named, it's named after a man who was a... a a slave during the before the Civil War, and his sisters were abolitionists. They emancipated him, and then he was one of the first, uh, I believe, the first African American to graduate from Princeton Theological Seminary mm, okay. back when it was a very conservative Presbyterian school sure, in yes. the 1800s. And then he went on to pastor the same church for 50 years uh, in DC, not too far from us. And he did so during that horrific pandemic of 1918 and all the rest of that, and had yeah. to try to pastor people through it as we we all have done. Right. And so there was a little bit of. Um, providential irony even in that name a school after a man and then this weird thing hits and oh anyway so yeah they can google that and keep in touch with us that way we have a mailing list and people can also read the bios of some of the professors and follow follow us on social media and and see some of the things that we're doing well thank you thank you guys one of the roles that you have is that you're you're professor of biblical studies that's right so you teach the old testament and we just happen to be reading through well, Second Kings is what we'll say, but you can correct us and let us know that there is really right. only one Kings, <laughs> right. right? But and and so as we're in this portion, that's where we have our questions from this week. Is it all right with you? We just jump right into we it. We love it. All right. So the first question we have is one that is well, it's uniquely applied to all of us with our yeah yeah our we have some hair hair things, issues hair <laughs> issues going on here. And so we find this bizarre event in Second Kings two twenty three through twenty five with a bear attack and so what was the significance of this event and why is it detailed to us in scripture yeah that is a great question and you're right um for the listeners out there uh who who haven't already paused and looked up uh i'm even i'm even bolder uh uh than my host today so i uh, we i uniquely feel a sense of divine justice when um this bald prophet is mocked and then a bear comes out of the woods at the lord's command and takes care of business, as we might say. But it is certainly a strange story. And what really makes it difficult for for God's people, as we read through, is the phrase young men or boys, mm-hmm. or some translations even right. say children. And that that seems tough. Right. Doesn't it seem harsh that as, as insulting as uh, maybe the taunt might have been, most of us, if teenage boys hurled insults at us, wouldn't ask the Lord to send a vicious animal to take them out. No, you I'm might think it. You might think right, it. I was going to say. <laughs> you might think it. And you might even pray it, but normally it doesn't get answered that right. way uh, for the good of us all. Yes. Um, God's and, common grace. And yet, and yet, here it is in story. So that's a great question. You know, one of the things that um, is happening here, most scholars think, is that that phrase that's translated young sons or young men or boys or children mm-hmm. is not being used in the normal way that we would talk about children. Okay. And here's how we know that. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the book, the book of Kings, which was one book, but it was so long that they split it into two scrolls, and that's why we call it First Kings, Second Kings. Same okay. thing happened with the book of Samuel. It was one book telling one big story, yes, but sure. so long you can't fit it uh, on, on one scroll back in the day, so they would put it on two, and that's where the names come from. So I refer to them as that, too. I just try to teach my students. Remember, it's telling one story, so it isn't like broken up into, well, now that's over, and we move on to something else. Sure. That's so, a good, good so point. earlier in in the book that we call the book of First Kings, that same word that's translated children here is used to talk about Rehoboam's, uh, King Rehoboam's advisors, okay. and it tells us that Rehoboam was forty one, but it calls his advisors children. Mm. It's very unlikely 
that a 41-year-old man was asking eight-year-olds for their advice. Right. Right? <laughs> right. And right. in fact, it tells us they had grown up with him. So they probably were his age. Okay. So can you think of why someone might call a 41-year-old man a child? Why would you do that if you weren't... Let's pretend you weren't doing it kindly. What might that mm. mean? Yeah, I mean, immaturity. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what scholars think is happening, that the author of Kings, who doesn't really identify himself, but it was probably someone um, uh, among God's people who, who knew the story of all, mm -hmm. of all these kings and um, which was under the inspiration of the Spirit recounting the story for God's people so that they could learn very important lessons from the history of how well, this book has a lot of failures, but mm -hmm. a few successes yes. and how God had dealt with his people. And so I think he's signifying to the readers these men, though they were grown, were immature. And something like that might be happening here. And there's even another detail that helps us. It isn't just that we're dealing with deeply immature men. It's also that the city they're going to, Bethel, was okay. the site of a pagan temple in northern Israel. Hmm. And so there are some other clues in this story that just as, um, I think it was, was it, was it Ahaz? Had, no, uh, uh, as a, um, Ahaziah had sent out a troop of soldiers to attack Elijah. Yes. So also we see something similar going on here with a group of men, maybe prophets in that temple who are coming out taunting Elisha. So we think that their taunts would have been more than just name calling, that it sure. might have been a similar group of people who were coming to just actually harm this prophet that the Lord had called out for special purposes. And so when he responds in the way that he does, two things are happening. Number one, their, their immaturity is being exposed. Not just immaturity like we think of as a teenager, but mm -hmm. spirit, deep spiritual immaturity. Yes. To not recognize this man as a, a true prophet in Israel that had a special message from the Lord. So they're, when they were mocking him, they're actually mocking God's word yeah. that oh, was yes. going to come through him. So that's a right. deep problem. And then secondly, if if indeed they were part of that pagan temple in northern Israel at the site in Bethel, then there's a kind of divine justice that is happening mm -hmm. here too, right. where the Lord is actually punishing their idolatry and whatever other immorality may have been present at that temple. And if that is the case, and most conservative scholars think that's a pretty good read on this story, then we don't have a story of eight-year-olds being attacked by a bear <laughs> right. for the simple slip of a tongue. What we have is a really strong reminder that, number one, God's prophets carried in a message from the Lord that was for his people and that to mock him was to mock the God who sent him. And number two, immorality and idolatry never end well for those who, who go in for it. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Absolutely so when you think about that in Second Kings four thirty eight, yes, know, there's that reference to the sons of the prophets. I mean, are we talking? Is that the same? Great question. Kind of, okay, that is a great question. Something similar is going on there, but though it's a different word. That's sure. the Hebrew word Ben, the normal word that we we translate son. Okay, and right. the thing is that word is used thousands of times in the Old Testament. Just think of all the genealogies: so and so, son of so and so, sure. son of so and so. <laughs> so of the many times it's used, most of them by far just mean son. Okay. My okay. son, your son. But probably not here. Do you remember when Amos says, I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet? Yeah, yes. it's kind of come into English as a proverb. We, we sometimes will jokingly say, you know, maybe someone asks you to do something and you say, I'm neither a, a lawn care expert nor the son of a lawn care expert. <laughs> yes. I don't know how to keep yeah. your grass green, you know? We, we say that as a joking way to say, I don't have any connection whatsoever to whatever kind of expert you're looking for. 
And the reason that Amos is using that phrase, neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, is because that word son was being used in a way, in that, in that place, in a special way that meant something more than a biological male child descended sure. from a dad. That was actually a common way in the um, Old Testament and in um, ancient Israel that students, disciples, and apprentices of a prophet hmm. would be referred to as the sons of that prophet. Okay. In fact, many prophets wow. were not married. Some of them were, but some sure. of them were not. And the ones who weren't, their students were kind of looked at as their sons hmm. in the ministry is a phrase okay. that is common in some um, churches in America. Not the tradition I grew up in, mm-hmm. but one of the professors I work with was raised in a, a conservative, historically black um, church. And they often refer to um, men that they take under their wing and that they train, just like Paul did with Timothy, as their son in the ministry. And that's exactly what Paul says of Timothy, right? right. Same thing. So in the Old Testament, a son of a prophet was not normally referring to someone's actual male child, but rather a, a society or a group of men who had studied with that prophet and would have been seen as, you know, of the same school of thought or, you know, helping him in his ministry in some way. So that's probably what's happening there yeah. in that ah, chapter. Okay. And so you, any translational differences you see there sure. are, are really just a literal translation is going to translate the word son as son, son. and uh-huh. then leave it for the pastor to interpret for the people. And a more like dynamic or thought-for-thought translation will say, well, we know that in this place that's not referring to a biological son, so maybe we'll just call it a group of prophets okay. or a society. There's Good. no problem with either one as long as you understand what's taking place. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. We we have a lot of focus on prophets and the, the book of Kings specifically Elijah yep. and Elisha. Yes, but it's called Kings. Yes, and so <laughs> a question we have is which one of these kings is the most significant? And if as we're talking about the whole spectrum of scriptures, and it's more of an opinion question, but yeah, what would you say? One. That's tough. I had to think. I you know, uh, I'd have to think about that. I. I I wonder if maybe the sheer number of them is part of the significance. Okay. Like we're supposed mm-hmm. to see um, not just one or two is the really, really good ones, though that some were much better than others. Sure. Um, but maybe uh, the fact that there just were so very many in mm. and of itself is significant. For one thing, it shows us just how long a period of time we're talking about. Okay. The Book yeah. of Kings probably covers over 400 years of history. Right. Yeah. So whoever was writing this wasn't living through all of that mm. at this point in God's in the, in, in history. Sure. The Lord had shortened the lifespan of his you know people to 120 years or less. Yeah. And we've seen that play out throughout the rest of history. There is no more Methuselah at this point. No. <laughs> Methuselah could have written the whole book of Kings and lived through it. He could have. You know, but not here. So whoever's writing this is writing at the very end which means they've already seen all of these men come and fall. Mm. And the reason that's important is one of the things that God's people would have been looking for based on the promise that the Lord made to Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was a king who was going to sit on a throne Mm. and his kingdom would never end. Mm. And every guy who comes on this scene, it's almost like when you're reading it for the first time, you get chills when the good one comes along because you think, Maybe he's the guy. But whoever's writing the book of Kings is writing from the privileged perspective of knowing they've already come and gone, brothers. They're not the one you're looking for. And so I kind of think the whole point is to point you to the king who hasn't come yet, who is going to sit on David's throne one day, and his kingdom really won't have it in. So it might seem cheeky, but I think the most significant king in the book of Kings is King Jesus. Absolutely. Even though he's not mentioned by name, (laughs) you know. Um, But if you wanted another answer, I would say you highlight on the last two. Josiah comes on the scene, 
and does some really beautiful things. Rebuilds the temple, repairs part of the temple that had fallen into ruin. He recovers the book of the law and he leads God's people in a revival of faith and repentance. Mm -hmm. And he's definitely put forward as a, a good picture of what the king whose kingdom is gonna last forever would be like only infinitely better. Yes. yes. And then unfortunately his life is cut short and it's toward the end of the book, so you feel the weight of that tragedy because he's so much better than all the, the ones who've come before him. And then who comes after him? Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, right? And they're terrible. And the message uh, that we're left with is it, they were in charge around the time of the uh, fall of the southern kingdom when God's temple's destroyed, when his people are carted off into Babylon. And so the, the bitter taste of, of an evil king is left in your mouth, almost leaving you longing for a Josiah who... His life is not cut short and whose kingdom will last forever. And even that is a beautiful picture of the gospel because in one sense, Jesus' life was cut short. But yes, in another sense, yeah. it was part of the Lord's plan. And by raising him from death, he did install him on a throne that's going to last yes, forever. Absolutely. So yeah, when you read it, I, I think, you know, you think, think Jesus, but then also when you get to the end, look at how the author has has highlighted those last two as a strong positive and strong negative example so that you almost have in your mind this clear picture of this is who we're looking for only better and that's clearly what we're meant to avoid and not not be about in any way shape or form none of the idolatry none of the immorality none of the injustice that characterize these negative kings and if you look at those as like big themes then you can keep those two pictures in mind as you work through the entire book and almost compare and contrast every other king that you come up against with, with those big images. Sure. Yeah. Right. And as you consider those kings, I mean, we, we found Elisha and Elijah yeah. as some very significant prophets that yes. spoke into some of those kings' lives. I Definitely. Mean, so one of the questions that came in was, of those two, which one... Uh, would you say was more significant? I mean, both obviously had huge roles. He did. Um, and, and we talked about cut short. Yep. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> already you've mentioned that. So we see that in Elijah's ministry, or from our perspective, it looks like it's cut short. Sure. Uh, where do you where do you think of those two? I mean, which... Yeah. So one of the most interesting things about those uh, two men is how similar their lives were at different points. Um, remember with Elijah in the first Kings, he ends a drought. But then Elisha comes along, and in 2 Kings 7, he ends a famine. Hmm. Elijah had Jezebel, who swore to kill him in 1 Kings 19. But then Elisha has Jehoram, who uh, tries to swear to kill him in 2 Kings 6. Eli Elijah, with a J, these are those two. That in English, <laughs> yes. it's tough, right? It's, you you right. always sound like you're saying the one and you mean the other. So when you put them next to each other, man, it's tough. But Elijah, with a J, uh, had to flee to Sinai. And... Elisha flees to Damascus. Mm. And then while there, Eli Elijah anointed uh, Hazael and Jehu, and then Elisha anoints the same people. So even down to the anointing of these same names, so significant that those parallels clearly were on purpose. The Lord was not only guiding the course of their lives to be similar, but was doing it for a reason. The really, really fancy term for this is called recapitulation, which is just a ridiculously long word <laughs> that means a kind of repetition with slight differences for the sake of making an important point. And okay. we actually see this in other places mm, in the Bible. Yeah. Think about the beginning of Jesus's life and his birth. In, um, we know the story of his birth up through the coming of the wise men, and a lot of times we kind of leave it off there. But sure. let's pick up from there and keep going. Remember the wise men warned Jesus um, that they need to flee because Herod is coming to take them. And as a result, where does Jesus and his family go? 
Egypt. Down, down to, to Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. And when, Math when Matthew says the reason that that happened was so that this prophecy in Hosea, mm -hmm. out of Egypt I've called my son, might be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have noticed, if they go back to Hosea and they read that, it didn't seem exactly like Hosea might have been thinking about the Messiah when he said that. And so it leaves you wondering, what are you doing, Matthew? Like, I believe God's word is true. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's inspired. But also, what is Matthew doing here? Well, I'll tell you what I think he's doing. He's reading Hosea when Hosea said that, and he's thinking about the fact that Jesus's life is going to recapitulate, repeat with slight differences for a reason, the story of Israel. Hmm. So Israel went into Egypt, mm -hmm. and he's saying that one day God's deliverer is going to come out of Egypt. But he's not the only one who saw that. You go back to Moses in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. I know it's not our favorite book of the Bible, but <laughs> but when, there's some neat things We've in there. Some great oh, yeah. questions we come out of Great that. things in Numbers, right? So Numbers 23, God is recounting the story of bringing his people out of, out of uh, slavery in Egypt. And he says that he brings them, plural, out of Egypt. And then the very next chapter, if you're reading, do you guys use the like uh, ESV or the CSB or what? We use ESV. ESV perfect, mainly. perfect. So some of the more thought for thought translations don't always do the best job with what I'm about to say. But if you look this up in your Bibles at home in the ESV in Numbers 24, you'll notice they repeat the same phrase. God brings them out of Egypt, but it changes it to a singular and says God brings him out of Egypt. So what Moses is doing is saying in the same way that God rescued his people from Egypt, one day this king, this deliverer is going to come out of Egypt as well. So even as early as the first five books of the Bible, you already see him looking at God's people's past and saying, I think there's something about the way God rescued his people in the past that he's going to do it again yeah. in the future awesome. in a similar way yes. with slight differences. So we have Jesus going to Egypt and then come out. And then remember when God's people were going through the wilderness, what um, in order to come into the promised land, what body of water do they have to pass over? Red, Red sea. sea. And then what, what river to get into the boundaries? River Jordan. River Jordan. Jordan. So we have Jesus, Matthew 2, coming out of, of Egypt. And the very next thing we're told about after we're introduced to John the Baptist is that Jesus goes into the River Jordan to be baptized. Right. Hmm. You're like, yeah, but that's not the same. But remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10? That God's people passing through this body of water, it was as if they were being baptized. Hmm. And so we have these connections that are made. So even there, Jesus' story is recapitulating part of Israel. And then we had Moses. He goes up on Sinai to receive the law. What is Jesus? What are we told in the very next chapter? Chapter, the end of chapter 4, beginning of Matthew 5. What are we told that Jesus, where does he go? He goes up on a mount, yes. but not to receive the law, but rather to interpret it for his people, to tell them exactly what it means, and honestly, how their only hope is to, to build their life on, on this guy who is the rock, the redeemer. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus does that. And you have something similar going on with Elijah and Elisha. Mm -hmm. Elijah, with a J, right. does about eight miracles. And then Elisha prays and asks for a double portion of the Lord's Spirit yes. and goes on to do 16 miracles. All right. Why? Because you have this pattern of we're going to repeat but with some differences for a reason. That follows a previous pattern that was already established. Remember Moses? What happens at the end of his life? He prays, asks that the Lord would give Joshua a spirit of wisdom. Joshua 1 starts off by saying, Joshua receives this, and he goes on to become, in some ways, a better Moses. Better Moses, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because of his sin at a crucial point. But Joshua not only enters it, but enters it and succeeds, conquers, and, and, and procure, you know, secures this land for the Lord's people. So we have these patterns of one, and then a second one who comes along like him, but with improvements. Yeah. So then yeah. you get Elijah, and then you have Elisha. And do you know what the last of the books that we call the prophets is? It would be the last book in our, in our English Old Testament. Do you remember which book that is? 
It's, uh, in, in most English Bibles, yep. the last one we have is Malachi, yes. right? So the very end of that is this prophecy that one day the Lord will send this figure like Elijah with a J mm -hmm. who will come and turn the hearts of God's people back to the, the Lord and that will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord when he judges the nations and delivers his people. So guess what? The last book of the English Old Testament has this promise of you're looking for someone like Elijah to come. And who does Jesus say that figure is, right? He says that was John the Baptist. Right. So yeah. what's ringing in everyone's ears who knows this pattern of Moses, but then someone like Moses, but better. Elijah, but then someone like Elijah, but better. Mm -hmm. Now we have John the Baptist, but now we've got someone like John the Baptist, but much yeah. better by far. Yeah. So, yeah. When G so when he says, when John the Baptist says of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease, he's not just making a wonderful statement about humility, although it is at least that. Yeah. He's actually making this really rich statement about, guys, the ministry that I had is going to pale in comparison to the one who yeah. comes after me. It's not just that I'm unworthy to tie a sandal because I'm a sinner. That's true. Mm. It's also because this pattern that we have in the Bible of repetition but with elevation with greater significance is about to be fulfilled in the most glorious way. You think he knew that or he just he, said I that? Think, he I just, think if I he, mean, if, he was, if he's reading if he's reading Kings right. and he's yeah. reading Moses <laughs> and Joshua yeah. I think that pattern of repetition and then mm. elevation would have been in the minds of God's people and they certainly would have known the prophecy about Elijah. What was interesting about John the Baptist is he didn't think that was him. Remember? They asked yeah. him and he said right. no. Yeah. But when they asked Jesus he said yes if you can receive it. And so I think John did have a deep humility. I think he had that shape of a knowledge of there's someone who's going to come after me and he's greater than me. But he, in his humility, he didn't see that he was the one the Lord had chosen to sure, prepare the right. way for the one who would fulfill all of this. So the answer to that question is, I think we're meant to see Elisha's ministry as an increase for all the reasons I was just laying out. And it will help us have that same shape in our minds so that when we get to the New Testament and then John comes on the scene and introduces us to Jesus, mm. you, you're supposed to feel chills because you know yeah, something sure. really big is about to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> we, have, we have all this going on around the people of Israel and the, where the kingdoms divide us together, Israel and Judah, but yet they get exiled. Yeah. And so what was the central reason for the exile of the people of Israel and Judah? Uh -huh. and, and were there any secondary reasons? Yeah, I, I like the way that question is asked because... Yeah, there definitely are secondary reasons. Okay. Um, maybe let's start with those because those are, are, are kind of like the boring historical ones. The boring answer is Israel was exiled <laughs> because they were conquered by powerful nations. Okay. <laughs> yes. But that doesn't go far enough. That's like if my son asked me, why was Jesus crucified on the cross? If the only answer I gave him was, was because the Jewish people thought he was a blasphemer and the Romans thought he was a troublemaker, I've spoken truly about secondary causes, but I haven't given you the deepest and truest answer. The deepest and truest answer is the Lord permitted the Jewish leaders and the Romans to put Jesus to death Absolutely. because he had special purposes to atone yes. for the sins of the world and create a path to resurrection, which is mm. the hope of all those who trust in him. So in a similar way, when we look back at the story, it would be terrible if we just read it like history and said, well, you know, the reason it happened is because bigger, powerful armies came in. Well, that's mm. true. But we have yeah. to ask, why did God permit that? Right. Why did yes. he allow that? To these people, he promised to give them a, a, a land of safety and security where they could dwell in peace. And, uh, and the answer goes back to the first five books of the Bible. When the Lord made a covenant with his people, he set forth these stipulations mm -hmm. and said, you are my people and I am your God. And if you want to walk with me as people who belong to me, 
then this is what that looks like. And it begins right. with the Ten Commandments, and then most yeah. of the other laws in the book of Numbers and Leviticus are actually um, applications of the Ten Commandments. We don't always see them that way, but that's, that's really what most of them are. Sure. Not the ones that are ceremonial that, that were fulfilled by Jesus when it pointed to the sacrificial system and that sort of thing. I'm thinking yeah. of the ones that we think are weird. Like, um, <laughs> oh, how about this one? You have to build a fence around your roof. That seems super strange. And yeah. we're thinking, how could that have any holiness attached to it right. other that than God said it? Right. You know, <laughs> it before OSHA. Before yeah. OSHA. Yes. <laughs> other than, you know, other than somebody <laughs> saying, well, God said it and I believe it and that settles it and I have to do it. And that's true. But right. God is not a willy-nilly random sure. God. He's got good reasons. So think about the Ten Commandments with me and think about why a fence on the roof might have been required. What command is that a, a, a kind of application of? It's, a, it's, it's trying to prevent God's people from what we would call, in our, in our American context, manslaughter. The mm. accidental death of another person mm. for which you were held partly accountable. You mm. know, if you, if you were um, driving recklessly and you strike someone, you're not going to be tried for murder because you weren't trying to kill them. Right. But you have killed them in a way that you are partly responsible for. Well, in, in that day, everyone hung out on their roof. They didn't have AC. Okay. It was even hotter than yeah. Rock Hill, South Carolina, okay, <laughs> in the summertime. And you didn't have porches. So in the, in the night, when it finally cooled off after sunset, your house was still like an oven. So everyone hung out on the roof. What about children? They don't know to stay away from the edge. So God told his people to build a fence around the roof, not because he's random, but because he loves justice and he loves mercy and he, wanted, and he loves life. So he yes, said, build a fence yes. around your roof so that you don't accident, even accidentally lead to someone else's death. Many of those laws that seem weird to us, when you think about them just a little, you can, if you squint, you can see that they are applications of these truths God gave his people in the wow. Ten Commandments. But then he goes on in Deuteronomy, when you have this whole new generation that has grown up without the law, the rest of them have perished in the wilderness, we get the laws given to them a second time because it's a whole new generation who needs to be taught the ways of the Lord and how to walk with him. And one of the things that Moses does is he sets before them at the end of the book, he says, listen, let me tell you what will happen. When we don't keep these, it's not going to go well for us. (laughs) Things like idolatry and immorality and injustice will multiply, and the Lord says we'll be cursed for that. On the other hand, if we keep trusting him, and we seek to obey him, not perfectly, but faithfully. With, that means when you mess up, you repent, you say you're sorry, and then you, you, you turn away from that and you keep walking. That's the difference between perfection, which is impossible, and faithfulness, which is what God calls us to. Absolutely. He yes. says if we're faithful, we can expect certain kinds of blessings. The most critical thing, the, I, I can't stress this enough, by far the most vital lesson that I have to teach some of the men who take Old Testament with me is this. None of those blessings and curses were the blessing of salvation or the curse of damnation. Because God gave his people the law after he had already rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He already had made them his people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, it it says to the fathers, when your son asks you, why did the Lord give us these laws? It doesn't say, so that if we keep them, we will be forgiven and can go to be with him in heaven forever. What it says is, so that we would remember that we were slaves in Egypt and that he brought us out of there with a mighty hand and has preserved us safely to this day and that we will be a just people, a righteous people, if we keep them. So the blessings and curses were mostly about how well are you going to enjoy the life that God has given you? How safe are you going to be? How good of a society will you have if you keep them? And one of the curses was that you'll, be, you'll lose this, this land that the Lord has given to you, a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, right, full of trees you didn't plant, houses you didn't build, yeah. a gift of grace upon grace. 
but if you walk away from the Lord, you will forfeit um, the, the, the privileges that he's given to you in such a way that you will lose it. And even there, we see another repetition of a pattern. When they're exiled, think geographically with me. Israel's on the coast, okay? okay? Mm-hmm. So what was to the west of Israel? The big body of water, yeah. the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea. sea right. So that means when they were exiled, what direction were they taken? Not to the sea. No, they were taken east. taken east. Can you think of another famous exile in the Bible where people had to go east? Think early, like Genesis 3. Yeah, okay. And, and, and we've talked about before about how right. oftentimes you see in Scripture that idea of going east Correct. is kind of this idea of going further away from God. Correct. So yeah. in the garden, when Adam and Eve yeah. were exiled, they're sent east of right. Eden. And that establishes the beginning of a pattern that the... That that the idea of the presence of the Lord, remember Jesus is walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3, and when they're exiled, there's a sense of they're being cast out of the Lord's presence. And again, if the Lord's presence fills the temple, and we know that God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Sure, yeah. right. So, you know, when my son, my son recently asked me, what does it mean that God's presence is in the temple? I grabbed a magnifying glass and I said, look, where's, where's the light of the sun right now? It's everywhere. But when I take a magnifying glass, I hold it, I can focus the light of that sun mm, on yeah, a particular point so that it's strengthened and visible and felt in that way. In fact, if you mm-hmm. put it on your hand, it's going to hurt no, it's not that. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so in a similar way, the, the Lord whose presence is in all places, he, 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 the, J, David says there's nowhere we can run to get away from him, nor is there anywhere we can go that's beyond his help to, help to his, his ability to help us. It's a beautiful promise. What do we mean when we say his presence is in the temple? I think it's a magnifying glass. It is a concentrated place of God's presence where uh, the goodness of the Lord and his holiness and his mercy and his justice would have been seen and experienced by God's people. So when they're exiled, it's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They're being separated from, removed from this because of their mm-hmm. sin. And even there, we have this pattern that's being formed so that when we get to places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about the tragedy of those who reject Jesus and do not obey the gospel. And how does he talk about it? Do you remember? He says they are... Um, punished with eternal destruction by being cast out of the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That phrase, the glory of his might, is used to talk about the temple in the Old Testament. So it's another way of saying that even the reality of hell is like a permanent exile from the goodness of God. And so we have this picture of what's happening to God's people that's supposed to be a reminder that because they turned their backs on the Lord in idolatry and because they stopped keeping their life pure through immorality and because they let their society fulfill like fill up with corruption and greed and injustice of every kind the lord turned them over to their sin almost in the romans one way and they suffer the consequences of that it becomes this picture not only of what happens when we sin but beautifully how the lord saves so that when jesus comes on the scene many of the gospel writers point back to God's people being brought back into the land as a picture of what of what salvation is like. Yeah. I think there's a, a musical artist named uh, Andrew Peterson. Oh, yeah. Who, are uh, you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he's got this wonderful song, and he's written in this uh, Christmas musical, and it sings about how uh, the experience, what would the experience for a Jewish person have been like a generation before Jesus? They're back in the promised land but they're still struggling with sin. And so he sings this song through the perspective of someone on the eve of the Messiah's birth who's crying out to the Lord, and they say, our enemies, our captors, are no pharaohs on the Nile, because they've been long gone. He says, our toil is is neither mud nor brick nor sand, because they're not slaves in Egypt anymore. Mm -hmm. He says, our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. 
deliver us, deliver us. Yahweh, hear our cry and gather us beneath your wings tonight. And then Jesus comes Beautiful. on the scene. And this is what he says. How often I long <laughs> to gather you. That's, 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 um, that's restoration sure, language, yeah. right? Yeah. To bring you back from yes. exile. The deeper exile that this one was pointing to. And so I think that's why the Lord permits it to happen. He was teaching mm. his people not only the consequences of sin, but a picture of their deepest need of salvation and how they needed to have that exile overcome, huh. which, of course, only the Messiah could do. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. God is good, man. His yes. book, I love to tell my students when we talk about the Old Testament, there's so many cool connections like this. I jokingly say, it's almost like these authors had help. Because yeah, they, did. They, they did, right? And the students who don't understand the tongue-in-cheek humor are looking at me like, does he not be? I was like, brothers, that's a joke. The Holy Spirit was their helper. These guys could never have written something this profound and this beautiful without the Lord giving speed to them, their, their quills as they wrote. Yes. Anyway. So as you look, I mean, big picture now, just zooming out yes. uh, here as we finish up. I mean, things that our listeners should pay special attention to, you know, as we kind of finish up the Book of Kings and yeah. head into Chronicles. In anything. I mean, you've certainly blessed us, really. With Thank you so much. Picture Praise and, God. And really helping us see that. So anything that we need to take that magnifying glass to. That's good. Uh, kind of as we finish these. Yeah, uh, this so, is going to sound simple, but just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, even as you're reading this book in the Old Testament. Remember, our Lord tells us in the New Testament that it was all about him. He yes. says in Luke 24, when he was trying to teach those men on the, the road to Emmaus, yes. that the law, yes. that's the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, that would be the middle portion. And then the Psalms, which was the first book of the last third of the Old Testament mm -hmm. in the way that it was ordered in Jesus's day. Uh, he says, it's all about me. Everything written about it mm -hmm. is about me. Mm -hmm. And um, then he does the same thing with his disciples. Uh, later on, uh, he's having dinner with them. And he says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and told them that everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so even a little book like Kings that sometimes feels so foreign and distant and removed from and from, harsh from, and harsh yeah. from our context is actually a story of the struggles of God's people to um, stay faithful. And yet in that, you get to see a glimpse of God's long suffering and faithfulness to keep his promises even when we fail to keep ours. So there's grace yes. in that. And yes. then there's also the constant reminder of our need for a better king. You know, we act crazy in America every four years when an election rolls around and um, elections matter. I think sure. we've oh, seen yes. that, you know. But one thing that elections can't do is they can't usher Jesus in. Oh, and it's right. just the book of Kings is a good reminder that even the best king that, that they had still A, had feet of clay and B, had an expiration date. He came right. and he left. Right. But Jesus is the one king is never going to go away. And so until his kingdom comes fully, uh, when he returns to take us home, um, there's a sense in which we can rejoice in a good leader and the good that they do, but not have exaggerated expectations yeah, for what, yeah, what we might hope that they do. Right. Um, and then similarly, when we have a negative, a really bad leader, we can take uh, lessons from the book of Kings and rem be reminded that so often, as goes the leader, so goes the people. Mm -hmm. That can happen in a local church. You guys know this as mm -hmm. pastors. That can also happen in a country. It's a good reminder for God's people to stay faithful, even when it might be costly, when, it, when a king is making the lives of God's people difficult in places. There was a group of folks who always believed uh, the Lord's promises to send the Messiah, and they sought to stay faithful to him. The Lord calls them the remnant, you know. It's not a bad name for a church. Uh, right. 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 Uh, <laughs> As you pastor. <laughs> um, 
But uh, imagine how difficult their lives must have been. Their neighbors would have been going along with the pagan way of the king, even though he was supposed to be one of God's people. He's leading them all astray, and you're trying to stay faithful. And it's hard to do that when everybody around you, even people who claim the name of Israel or today who claim the name of Christians, seem to be walking contrary to what God's word says. There's even a lesson in the book of Kings about the importance of staying faithful to the one who's the true king, even when the the guy with the leader name tag is walking in the wrong direction. You don't have to. In fact, you shouldn't. And the great promise from God is that he'll vindicate his people yes. on the last day. Mm. And so there's actually a lot of hope in this book. Even when you're knee deep in the weeds and it seems like a lot of evil's going on, even then you should look for the people who are faithful mm. and you should definitely look to the God who stays faithful above all, keeps his promises, and then we know the end of the story. He yes. sent a man named Jesus and that takes care of the rest. Praise the Lord. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes, I'll, call you, you. I'll call you Dr. Doug. How about that? that? Well, Doug is fine, but if you insist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for our listeners, uh, it will just be Pastor Chris and I next week, unless you want to phone him. We can do this. <laughs> we can. We we've can done actually, it before. Done it. I think i got to take next week off or my wife's going to kill me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining yes. us today. And thank you guys uh, for listening. You. Again, if you have questions, send those in to through the word 22. That's through the word number 22 at gmail.com. God bless you and have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Through the Word podcast. If you have any questions for us, please send those in to through the word 22 at gmail.com. That's through the word and the number 22 at gmail.com. God bless you. Have a great day.